You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey folks, happy Wednesday. I'm back with back in your ears again with a really cool interview. Um, I had the great chance to interview Conrad McGee-Stocks, who is the growth lead at You Can Games. I was introduced to Conrad through a friend of mine, John, if you're listening, thank you. And I asked my friend John, um, who in your network is the, has the most interesting career? And he recommended Conrad, so thanks, John. Conrad started out in business and he left halfway through to attend the Ontario College of Arts and Design, uh, commonly known as OCAD in the Ontario sphere. And he wanted to do that to go deeper into the world of advertising with more of a design mindset. And so he did this uh, halfway through and we go through the decision making process that went in for that. And in our chat, we also go through the various responsibilities of what you know someone in growth marketing would actually do because I personally wasn't too familiar with it. And I came out of the interview with a great overview of what actually goes on and what you have to do in a growing tech company and how your responsibilities will actually evolve as the company grows. And Yukin is um, a mobile gaming company. And I also wanted to really drive into what the gaming industry was also like and a little bit also about how Conrad might actually utilize the habit-forming principles that you would put into game design into his own life. Because from my conversation with John, I learned that Conrad also did think a lot about habits and a lot of development in his own personal life as well. And so this was a really cool chat. And we go through the various areas of growth marketing, habits, and a lot more. So I really hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, I have with me Conrad McGee-Stocks. Hi Conrad, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey man, how's it going? Good, good. So Conrad is the growth lead at Yukon Games here in downtown Toronto. And so just to start off with Conrad, can you uh, explain to the audience who may not be familiar with Yukon Games, what the company does and what it might be known for? Sure. Uh, so we're a mobile game studio. That means we make games for uh, Android and iOS. Uh, and this studio has been around for eight or nine years now. Uh, it's founded by uh, two guys, Chris, uh, Chris Yee and Mark Lampert. Um, and together they built the studio now, we're about a little over 100 people. Um, we're down at King and & Duncan, and uh, yeah, we've been around for a while now. Uh, still really feels like a small startup. Um, I joined uh, employee number 40-ish, um, so I've sort of seen the company grow and mature. Uh, you might not call us a startup anymore, maybe more of a scale-up, I think that's probably a more popular term now these days, but uh, yeah, so we make games. Uh, our biggest games right now, um, so we work with Sony on some titles, so we have a game called Jeopardy World Tour with Alex Trebek, and then uh, we're just getting ready to launch another game, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And these are both coming out simultaneously. Uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is going to come out um, actually next week, 
so we're pretty busy kind of getting ready, ready for that. And then other games uh, that we do, um, a game called Bingo Pop is a really popular title. And then um, the other thing that we're really active in is the AR space. And we've got a title called Kings of Pool. Um, so you can play vir basically virtual pool anywhere with a friend. Um, yeah, so that's, so that's really what we're focused on right now. And then we're always looking at other stuff. Okay, great. Now, thanks for the uh, big overview. And so for the audience members, we are recording this September 18th, 2018. And so the new games will probably have been released by the time you're hearing this. So definitely go check it out and yeah, and take the time to enjoy it. So I guess I wanted to start the big interview um, going back to the beginnings of your, I guess, like the beginnings part of your childhood. Like, where did you grow up? Um, how would you describe your childhood? Sure. Oh, okay, I can go way back. Yeah. Um, so I guess I grew up um, really uh, in like a small town, Paris, Ontario. Uh, but I went to school in Hamilton. Um, I went to school in Hamilton, uh, and it was um, I had like a spectacular childhood as far as childhoods go. Um, you know, like really supportive parents. Hey, do whatever you want. Um, the school that I went to is sort of. Um, very fairly mono-dimensional in the sense that, or maybe not mono, but fairly narrow in the sense that okay, you either went, uh, you either went into business, um, or you went into law, or you went into science. If you're interested in sciences, you went and became a doctor. It was sort of like very limited. Um, so I think high school was maybe um, it was sort of fairly academic. I wasn't necessarily the most academic person, but it was a pretty academic school. Um, that's, I guess, maybe how I'd characterize my childhood from a really high level. I played a lot of video games too. Mm, okay, which is a bit of a connection with the video games and where you are now. Yeah, kind yeah. of. <laughs> I kind of, I guess. Yeah, but you didn't want to be like a professional gamer or something when you were like seven years old? That wasn't a dream? I, I feel like that wasn't even a thing when I was seven. Mm. Like, I, I think that like the whole, you know, like esports, streaming, all of that stuff is like relatively recent. Um, and I think that when I was a kid, um, it was still like gaming and that whole kind of space hadn't really come into it its own. It was still kind of seen as like this this small offshoot of entertainment, you know, like now or relatively recently. I think if you look at the numbers, um, like more people watched esports last year than the MLB. Not that I have anything against Major League Baseball. It's just that's pretty crazy that like, hey, here's this huge thing and all of a sudden like video games are more watched um, and I think that if you you know look back at the 90s early 2000s it wasn't necessarily the same thing so I mean had that been on the radar I, I think I probably would have been like oh this is awesome you know definitely gonna I want to be a streamer but you know that wasn't really a thing back then yeah 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 I think for, for me um, so my background is I'm South Korean okay. and uh, so people in the gaming world know that South Koreans are very big into games and when I was young growing up my uncle, he actually played, played uh, StarCraft semi-professionally. So. Okay, okay. Cra yeah, I was going to say craft. Like yeah, that's... so I, I actually had an uncle who sat me down and taught me StarCraft when I was five, six years old, and I'm just learning to play a game, and I actually grew up just watching people just play <laughs> online games, and uh, I guess like esports now, they call it back when I was um, growing up in Korea and like the nearby area, but yeah. So that, yeah, so I think you have like... Um you know, like land culture, like land, like land places, things like that. Yeah, I think that's like a lot bigger, um, a, a lot bigger in South Korea uh, than definitely than it was here. 
but no, it, it's, it's weird how it's kind of shifting and there's a part of me that actually likes watching esports where because I think that's the only time when people, announcers refer to competitors as Korea versus the world a lot of times so there's a bit of that uh, national pride sometimes coming up and you know we're, we're not really good at a lot of things so that's that's nice to see um, okay. <laughs> but yeah so uh, a mutual I guess friend or colleague of yours John introduced um, us together and this kind of came about when I asked John, a friend of mine, hey, who do you know in your circle who has a really interesting and fascinating career? And he's like, oh yeah, my, my boss, Conrad, definitely. And yeah, like um, you mentioned how your high school, it was, you know, you either go to business or medicine and based on your LinkedIn profile, when I look at it, it's, you went to business, you went to Dalhousie, then you went to OCAD and kind of like a designer route and now you or in, you know, you, I think you did like a bit of like operations at fashion mm-hmm. or the fashion apparel company, and now you're in mobile games. So can you take me back to the beginning? Like, okay, you did business, we understand that path, and then what was the switch? Like, what happened from there? Yeah, um, so I started in business, uh, and it wasn't super fulfilling in the sense that, you know, I think that a business degree is really great if you want to go, um, if you're interested in working in finance or if you're interested in working in accounting, something semi-traditional. Um, for people who are maybe more entrepreneurially inclined or if they're not necessarily sure, you know, what area. Um, I don't know if it's a spectacular path, or it wasn't for me. Um, So that's why I was kind of interested in design, communication, that kind of thing. Really, uh, the way I kind of think about it is just like in conversion in general and converting people to stuff. Um, The main way you do that is through advertising, and that was an area that was like always very interested to me. and I'm trying to remember when, when I sort of was like, oh, this is, seems like something like actually worth studying. Um, and uh, however I sort of got interested in it, um, at the time um, I had been doing, uh, I had been running uh, like an event promotion company with a couple friends and uh, sort of routing shows, doing bookings in Halifax. Um, it was you know fairly easy to, to throw decent parties and get you know people who at the time this is back like 2010 2011 it's probably easier to get pretty good bookings like I feel like music has kind of you know been not that it wasn't then but there was like you know, you had access to really great talent and you could do, put pretty good shows together in like a 300 to 600 person room that now might be maybe more difficult to book. I don't know, I've been out of the space for a long time. Sorry, um, so is this during university? You're yeah, actually learning this with friends? Yes, yeah, so this is during university. Mm. Um, and uh, sort of basically throwing parties effectively. Like <laughs> parties in university, it's sort of like Halifax, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of doing that. Um, and they also was doing some of their clothing stuff. Um, not actually was on my LinkedIn, but... Um, more or less, I had like enough. I had enough work and had been kind of doing some advertising, um, and I put that together in like a little portfolio and pitched it to OCAD and said, "Hey, like I'm moving back from Nova Scotia, blah blah blah. Kind of have advanced standing, please." Uh, and long story short, they said, "Okay, yeah, sure. You know, you've got enough work." Um, and I finished my degree in advertising there, um, which is actually a, a degree in design, um, which is kind of a contrast to a lot of the work that I do now, which is not necessarily design related. Um, like I still work really closely with the creative team here and on my team, but um, in terms of like execution or really formal feedback, I don't do a whole lot of that anymore. Um, but that's sort of how it started. Okay. And what, 
what made you want to switch out in the midst of Dalhousie and go into OCAD specifically in like the design realm and advertising realm rather instead of doing like marketing at a business program? That's super interesting. I maybe part of it was it seemed that there wasn't I don't know like I was sort of just looking at like the program itself knew what it was teaching um, and it, none of it felt super uh, it just didn't feel necessarily all that relevant mm. um, like the, if you looked at the marketing program so like if I looked at some of the other more formal disciplines it was like oh it was a good program but the marketing one I was like eh. I wasn't sure that it was necessarily like worth it I guess in the long run, I was kind of like, ah, I wasn't sort of sold on it. Um, and I thought that maybe a more sort of formal design education, which is effectively complementary to complementary or advertising being complementary to marketing. Um, I thought that that might be more to maybe more difficult to learn after the fact. Like it kind of felt like the marketing, um, program, there's a lot of stuff that you could pick up, um, that you didn't necessarily need to go to school for versus like a design education where there was like a lot of things that you weren't just going to pick that up. Um, and so I kind of sort of chose to pursue that. Um, and that's kind of really why I made the switch. Um, but I had uh, sort of always been interested in that, in that path. And that was always something that I was, um, had thought about. And so it was like, I kind of always had like three main things I really liked. Um, one was computer science the other was design and then the third was just business I guess general as a sort of like a bucket um, so I chose to kind of switch from one to the other and then I've always sort of been sort of nurturing love for um, I guess like tech computer science that kind of thing sort of that's always sort of been in the background and then only more recently maybe in the last four years has that sort of become more central to my role and to what I'm doing and to my day to day okay and did you nurture so did you have any chance to do computer science stuff while you were in school or like as soon as you graduated did you try to explore that like you know we i know you're into that data stuff because we talked about all the data podcasts you listen to um but yeah how where did you start mixing in that computer science stuff um i mean it, it was sort of real, a lot of it started with like buying ads on facebook um oh, okay. yeah so that's kind of how like you get the performance marketing thing it's like if i look at like maybe the last six to eight years um, one thing that kind of runs through like all of them is I've been buying ads on Facebook um, for a really long time now and so initially it's like okay you're trying to buy ads to promote a party or sell tickets then it's you know buying ads to sell um, basically luxury loungewear and even more recently um, over the last four years it's generating installs generating you know um, growing the games uh, and so, you know, I've really seen that platform mature over the past number of years. But I think that's maybe where um, the initial sort of love of data started. Hmm. Um, and that's where uh, I think everything really, I guess, began, yeah, would be, would be in that data. And then I've always sort of, been, you know, been building websites or been some, something, you know, not that that's super technical, but prior I sort of studied... Um, even did some comp sci in university and decided not to necessarily pursue it full time as an engineer, but it was still a sort of always interested in it and like, you know, what was happening. Oh, okay. And so, okay, then let's say you know, we're, we're at the path where you've graduated from OCAD, you have this design training now. Were you running your events company whilst uh, doing OCAD as well? Uh, no, so OCAD, um, while I was at OCAD, I kind of had wrapped up on that. Um, there was a couple other guys that were involved in the business and they were more or less um, focused on it. I had kind of exited from that. 
Um, and while I was in, uh, while I was wrapping up at OCAD, I was actually helping um, launch a, a clothing company um, with a number of friends. Uh, the guy founded it was Adam Bleeden, um, who I'd still sort of consider a close friend. Um, and it's called Lazy Pants. Uh, and his whole insight was, you know, why are these things called sweatpants? Um, when all you want to do is be lazy in them. So the whole genesis of that was like, why sweat when you can be lazy? Um, so he, had, he kind of was on to something there um, and had gotten like a, a lot of great traction with um, some places. So in the, in the U.S., key, re key retailers were uh, Kitson and then here, um, the Bay carried us uh, Sporting Life, TNT. Um, so it was more like high-end. Um, Holtz carried us too. Uh, and um, I did that for a while and then eventually um, as I was wrapping up school you know I kind of realized like okay you know it was really great um, the team was like six of us I think at the time um, it was pretty small um, but it sort of really seen like, revenue grow and it was really fun um, but I really wanted to sort of pursue something that was maybe more in line with core interests and something that I kind of wanted to like pursue long term. Clothing was interesting, apparel was interesting, but um, you know, I, I necessarily don't have the highest affinity to sweatpants, to women's sweatpants. <laughs> you know, it's like I compare like a video games, women's sweatpants. Um, not that really when I left, I was like, oh, I want to go work in games. That was like definitely never on the radar for me. Um, I really, when I was sort of wrapping up, I thought I was okay. I was going to go um, and probably go agency side and, and work at a traditional agency as like an art director or something, or maybe in strategy. I sort of hadn't really nailed that thing out, um, but that's kind of where I was leaning towards. Um, and then it was really a, a sort of like a chance encounter with friends. Um, got talking to some people. Found out about you can met Chris and Mark, um, and somebody previously who was in. Uh, the, the, the growth team at the studio was much smaller back then, um, but somebody who I like still consider as a mentor, um, Peter Sum, he uh, more or less hired me here, um, and I was working with him for a while. He left to sort of go pursue um, healthcare, like a healthcare startup, um, and that's kind of where sort of things kind of got rolling here, and I sort of took over the team and grew from there to where we are now. And, and yeah, it was sort of, I guess that was that kind of, it really it didn't start out as a planned long-term thing. I was still sort of, for a while, thinking I was going to go into advertising, but that sort of never materialized. The culture here was amazing. Um, yeah, I really loved it and sort of fell in love with it. And you mentioned about how um, what you do now, it's, it doesn't really utilize much of that advertising that um, you studied um, back at OCAD and like the, more of the design principles there. But from someone outside looking in who's not very familiar with, let's say, advertising and marketing, mm -hmm. they seem very similar, advertising and marketing. Um, so where, where's the uh, contrast? Sure. I, I can see how there's not a lot of, there's a, a fairly nuanced difference between the two. So um, here, you know, the main focus, performance marketing. Um, so when you say performance marketing, especially in the mobile space, you're talking about, you know, spending you know a lot of, or deploying a lot of capital um, and you have a lot of models that are built out around understanding your return over a period of time whether that's you know three months six months a year um, especially in games you, you really understand like for every dollar you spend you know um, you know who you acquired how many people you know what they how often they like to play things like that um, so there's a ton of it's a really data rich environment so you really understand you have a really strong understanding of the types of things that you're doing with those marketing dollars that you're spending um, 
so it's sort of maybe more similar to finance in that sense. Um, so you, there's a lot of sort of control over that, and you really have like a lot of levers to drive growth um, in that space. Whereas maybe when I would have studied at OCAD, um, more more traditional advertising, you're talking about um, more traditional brand advertising where you're buying on you know channels, not just um, like on on the internet, not totally performance. So you can't attribute all you can't attribute all of um, the ROI directly. So you're looking at buying on TV, buying on you know all these other channels. And sure, you know you can do incremental lift studies, things like that. Um, and obviously, lots of brands do that. And that's it, it, and that also happens at like a totally different scale. You know, buying nationwide TV campaigns in the in the U.S. and Canada. You know, that's um, definitely slightly different. Um, so I guess it's less directly attributable. And I think that's probably the main thing mm. um, if you compare the two. Um, is that like the difference of direct attribution and really just the different business model for agencies? They're working with clients, helping sort of translate and sell and build stories. There's a lot. Of, there's still a lot of storytelling in what we do. Obviously, um, that's one of the things that I love. But it's, you know, for us as opposed to other people. Okay, and yeah, I guess um, with that advertising side, I guess that's some. Some of my friends have been calling it closer to I guess more traditional marketing, the old the old school system. Um, and so then if we were to look at, I guess, you know, what you do, I guess, more close to new school, um, the, the growth marketing space, and, like, how would you break that up? Like, I see people who do, like, they're called user acquisition, and people, some people are called, like, growth marketers, and some people are just straight, just growth only. How does that um, actually break down in terms of an entire kind of ecosystem? Sure. Um, I think it depends on where they are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think really, in my mind, they're kind of all synonyms. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, if you if someone does UA, um, your user acquisition, I think that's, you know, if someone told me, oh, I do UA, I'd say, oh, chance, chances are it's probably in games, um, just because that's like a, a pretty familiar vernacular for for people that work in that space, I think that's pretty common. Um, or something where you have, you know, players, users, um, see players, users, synonym there. Um, and I think that's kind of one area where you get pretty used to um, hearing that term. Um, you know, growth marketing, growth marketer, that's kind of what we say here. Um, I think that's a reflection of, you know, the team is built up of people who don't just do user acquisition. You know, maybe you're thinking about retention or re-engagement. Um, those two things are, are focuses of like bringing you know, how you how you have people enjoy the apps you know for a longer period of time than just you know a shorter period of time. Whereas you know maybe someone who's just doing UA is like laser focused on how do I get the most number of people to play this game for the cheapest price, um, which isn't a bad maxim. But there's you know I think there's more focused depending on what, what the other things you are doing. Um, so I think that's kind of a reflection of the growth marketer title. Um, you know, you can, there's things you have to think about um, on the organic side, like uh, app store optimization. So that's something that, you know, the team also focuses on and thinks about, oh, okay, like how do we, you know, and, and you can take a conversion lens to that too and say, okay, well, you know, what's the most compelling narrative or what's the most compelling, you know, what's what feature should I be talking about? What should we really be effectively selling or that you're trying to show potential players on the app store um, to make the marketing or the acquisition the most effective? And ha- having the same person think about both of those things um, has advantages in my experience. Mm-hmm. And with those marketers then, do you segregate out who does things like paid marketing versus people that do like search engine optimization? 
how, how does that work out? So, no, you know, so one for us, it would be um, app store optimization rather than search engine. Oh, yeah. Um, given that the, the main engine, you know, I mean, not to say that search engine isn't important um, for driving growth for games, but I think like, that sort of falls like maybe second tier in my mind um, to like the app store optimization first, SEM second. Um, because depending on the way, depending on like the type of game, so you know, maybe you have other games that have like maybe mid-core, I mean, there's maybe more long tail in certain spaces, um, maybe less in casual, depending on, but you know, I think that's totally up for debate. Um, uh, but no, it's sort of like really under the same person's purview. Um, it's like, hey, really it's about driving growth. It's like, hey, how do you drive the most growth possible? Um, and you know, a lot of time, you know, you're thinking about either how do you make the assets, um, the games, the products that you're trying to um, trying to grow the most compelling for people, and then the next, the second order thing is okay. Well, how do you get the most eyeballs then on that product or thing that you're trying to grow? So that's and that's why, in my mind, it makes sense to have the same person think about both of those things because they seem very sort of um, adjacent to one another. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so if we dive a little deeper into, I guess, what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of, I guess taking more of a picture of looking at yourself as a business that has different operating segments where you would invest your time into different activities. Mm-hmm. How would you slot these activities into whichever buckets that apply? And you just have like assign, say, like a percentage of time to it. So, as like an example, when I was at the hedge fund, um, my time would be allocated to, let's say, about 50% research focus on actually reading reports and let's say 30% on talking to management of companies and then 20% or roughly uh, actually discussing with the team and team meetings and more administrative stuff. Um, okay, so there's a ton of different things, you know, I, I, I wish I could say like, oh, 30, like 30% sounds like a big time chunk to me. Right, um, right. You can make it even even more yeah. um, minute, like you know, detailed if you if you want. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's no. I, I think there still are big pieces of my time that are spent. So a lot of it is on planning um, and thinking about it from a strategic standpoint. Like, okay, like where should we be investing time? Um, where do we get a competitive edge? Um, marketing um, or UA in the game space is, I think, notoriously pretty competitive. Um, so there's a lot, you know, you're competing with a lot of really smart people um, out there both, you know, I mean, pretty much globally because there's not a whole lot of barriers, minus a couple, you know, sort of specific markets, but a lot of the time you're competing, you're competing globally. So, um, you, you know, you can find competitive advantages in, in a number of different places, whether it's the creative, you know, how you're operating the way you do your A-B testing, the way you collect data, things like that. Um, and collecting data and just in the sense of like not, you know, not getting player data so much as, or like personal information, but more just as like, okay, in, from an engagement perspective, like what do people like, what do people not like? How do you delight them with more experiences that they like and do less of what they don't like um, and, and give them an experience that they're willing to pay for? Because I think that's ultimately what free-to-play is about when it's done well, like when it's balanced um, and it's, it can create a really enjoyable experience and I think that's you know, one of the things we're always trying to do um, so kind of bringing it back to the like what do I spend my time on um, I spend my time on planning so I call it 30% planning 30% um, 
you know, data data roadmap stuff or just sort of data in general. I can I can sort of blow that out or speak more specifically about that. Um, really, actually, I could say that I spend like ninety percent of my time planning and thinking about the future, um, and then a smaller percentage of my time like helping execute um, and that's sort of a reflection of a really strong team um, so a lot of my time yeah I would say is, is more spent planning um, and then a smaller portion is spent on you know making sure that things are working you know so maybe there'll be like a data fire maybe there'll be some issues um, and I'm pretty executional by nature so I do love to sort of get like get my hands dirty jump in um, whether it's so like our um, a lot of our processes are driven when like we're a big AWS customer, so we have a, you know, there's a lot of really great cloud stuff. Um, so jumping in and you know, so trying to assess assess an issue, but for the most part, you know, I think these days I'm I'm sort of thinking about the future, thinking about how to plan, thinking about, you know, what makes the most sense, um, uh, from like an executional standpoint, whether it's on the UA front or on um, like the forecasting or like how we understand and make our acquisition more competitive. Um, and in the UA space, you can do that in like, you know, a number of different ways. Mm. And in, so in that planning part, if we were to dig deeper there, um, is there a, a specific activity that you find the most enjoyable out of all the other ones that just kind of just immediately puts you into flow state and you're just like zoned in, this is what I love doing? It's... Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, looking at... Um, like there's a lot of stuff that puts me into a flow state because mm-hmm. I really I really enjoy what I do so it's you instantly say that I'm like oh but there's this but there's this I'm trying to think of you know what the kind of main thing within like the planning bucket um, that's really exciting um, but I think that like the leverage that you get from um, identifying like the right opportunity um, to derive a competitive advantage um, and, and being circumspect about that and saying like okay well we have X number of hours to invest in something. We can either choose to do X, Y, or Z. Um, I think there's like a ton of joy when you pick the right one, sort of like the satisfaction of like, oh, it worked. Um, and so when you're right, uh, so I guess it's sort of an addiction to, you know, not guessing, but planning effectively. Um, so really it's like that effective planning of saying like, okay, you know, I think we should try to build out this feature for our dashboards so that we can look at our acquisition in a specific way or we can slice things this way. Or maybe we should try to model the data in this way to uncover this insight. I'm sorry, I'm kind of being vague, but it's sort of nebulous um, without getting like super specific. Mm. Um, but that kind of that kind of exercise and saying like, okay, we planned it this way. Let's try it. Trying it, and then you know the great thing about the performance marketing, especially in the game space, is you like understand really quickly how um, how your decisions have impacted the returns that you're able to generate as a growth team. So make a successful you know sort of call, whether it's on um, the type of creative that you're using, maybe it's the message, or maybe it's even just the way that other people are trying to understand if they're making the right decisions. That for me is like spectacular. I love that. And, and so that it, is a, um, it seems that that's kind of closer to how you would even measure your own performance in terms of how good, how well you're doing um, as an individual as well as like a team. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think about the way, like, I measure my ability to, I guess, get the most out of the team's output. That's kind of the way that I sort of think about myself is like, okay, 
Um, I think you know anybody like I'm a huge believer in servant leadership. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Yeah. If you've ever heard that term, um, but yeah, like a huge believer in servant leadership. So I always think about like, okay, well, like how do I, you know, apply the most leverage to get the most time? So if I can put in one hour, you know, and get ten out from the people that work with me, then that's huge. So it's like, how do I how how do I optimize my hour to make their ten hours like the most effective? Um, and so it's that leverage point that I think is super powerful. Um, there's a, a really awesome book. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of Ray Dalio. Yeah. Yeah. So Ray, Ray talks about that. Um, in his book, uh, Principles? Yeah, in his yeah. book, Principles. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I think that, that concept is spectacular. And I think that um, is really the way I started sort of framing things and looking at it. Um, and what makes me tick in that sense. Yeah. And so then if we um if we decide to let's go little go into actually the details of what you do. Mm-hmm. Um so if we were to take a day like today, sure. um so to be the, the we started the interview today at two o'clock. What, what what did I do prior? Yeah, what did you do prior to two and what we what are your uh activities slotted to do uh after? That's a great question. I'm like actually pulling up my calendar just so I can make sure I'm mm. completely honest with what I say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, this is interesting. Tuesday's a cool day. Uh, when I come in at around 8, um, I always have 30 minutes blocked out um, to evaluate blockers. So I just sit down and I basically try to list out like, okay, what are all the blockers to success, whether it's personal or for the team or the company, like at whatever sort of scale and say, okay, well, what, what is it that's like holding us back? What's stopping success? Uh, and I, I found that it's like a sort of like a, a Tuesday ritual for me. I think Monday's no good. Monday's too busy for that. Tuesday's a great day and you just sit down and you just kind of like write out like, okay, what are the issues? So I do that every Tuesday. Um, and then, uh, you know, sort of 30 minutes to review some material. Um, like I said, we work with Sony a lot, so sometimes there's always back and forth. There's always great opportunities because um, they obviously have a ton of press connections. So, you know, there's some work there. Anytime you're doing IP licensing work, um, you know, there's things you have to look at. Um, and so it's one of my responsibilities to um, to really just say, like, okay, that makes sense. Um, and what else have I done today? Uh, so we just hired um, two more people for the team, two more growth marketers. Um, so with that comes a lot of onboarding, and I'm a, a huge fan of always improving the onboarding process. So just sort of looking at like, okay, from our you know, so John, John was our f- really my first hire actually. Um, so uh, John's onboarding was probably pretty crappy relative to you know like the 14th person um, that's joined the team, right? So having having that difference. Uh, and, and, and the way you generate that distance is like a really tight feedback loop of saying like, okay, what was good, what didn't make sense, and, and making sure that the um, making sure that the people really document like what's not working or what they didn't get. Um, I think the the growth space, um, acquisition space, uh, is notorious for a lot of really obscure like acronyms. There's there's a lot of obscurity, and there's not because it's a fairly new it's a fairly new space. There's like not a ton of great writing about it you know there's a there's a really great um, blog uh, run by a a guy um, named Eric uh, mobile dev memo Um, that's one thing that I think is like anybody that wants to work in the mobile space and anyone that's interested in acquisition is like read that you know um, there's a ton of great insight there 
really kind of, you know, maybe there's like one other, especially for games, Deconstructor of Fun. Like those are other guys that are really quite smart um, and putting out really good content. But otherwise there's like maybe fairly, it's just like maybe ad vendors. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's like, you know, people who are, have blogs and it's content marketing. So it's, I think might be difficult for somebody coming into the space to really differentiate between content marketing, um, which every, everything is at some point content marketing, but you know, there's varying degrees of quality within that. And I think that, you know, those two names in my mind really stand out. Um, so that's kind of a tangent. I was really just explaining. No, no, it's good to get more insight into that space as well. Yeah. Just cause it's like, I don't know, it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to find or like get really a lot of insight there. Um, yeah. Going on the rest of the day. Um, we normally do it. We normally do like an hour meeting on, on Tuesdays where we talk about, um, we were just, um, I'm trying to think of how, how to best abstract this. Um, so anytime you're buying, anytime you're buying ads for any intent, like every impression that you buy is an opportunity to learn what message converts the best. Um, so anytime you're buying ads, uh, you know, the impressions you're buying opportunity to learn, I think it's super important to maximize that opportunity. And so we've got a process that kind of helps support do that and or supports doing that. Um, and really central to that is obviously the, the creatives who are you know producing the ads and then um, the growth marketers who are um, buying the space optimizing thinking about the campaigns thinking about the targeting strategies um, and keeping an open dialogue and talking about the results and saying like okay well if this is working why is it working you know how do we turn what's working up to a 10 and what's not working down to a zero um, and so we spend um, you know sad we have dedicated time every week for that um, and then you know like the rest of the time eating lunch um, there's some time just kind of staring at it, the point where the corner meets the ceiling, like up to sort of in the, you know, kind of trying to catch my breath. Um, but otherwise it's just either meeting other people in the studio, um, you know, talking with the data teams about, um, me preparing for our worldwide launch, things like that. Um, so just like pipeline stuff. Um, and then thinking about, um, what our Q4 looks like was the rest of my time. Okay. And What's, uh, what do you have slotted to do after? After this? Yeah. Um, so after this, I have to, I'm actually talking to Sony. Um, so I'll get on the phone with them and we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about uh, how the games are going, you know, what new exciting stuff we can do. Uh, there's a tournament at, at Champions coming up for Jeopardy. So there's opportunities, you know, to do stuff with, to do stuff with them. So that's super exciting. Um, and then past that, um, more onboarding stuff for the team uh, and just sort of teaching a lot of teaching and mentoring hmm. yeah so every day I, I will normally spend like an hour or so um, just grabbing coffee um, with team members and spending time and talking about you know what's going well um, what could go better um, what they think they could do better and you're really sort of like I'm, I'm a big fan of tight feedback loops so like how to manage that um, and so we kind of have a process for that Mm. So that's like always a big afternoon focus. I think that's the best time to have those discussions. Nice. And you you, you alluded to this a mo- about a few times about how um, the competitive strategy for marketing is very important, but also there's the strategy of just the company's, I guess, products in its own in terms of the whole gaming space. Mm-hmm. And so if I kind of separated that into two different buckets and we kind of first tackled on the competitive spaces in the gaming world, um, I think with my kind of more level of understanding, the way that most gaming companies, mobile gaming companies that tend to make money, you kind of have these 
small number of whales that tend to feed a lot of the revenue, whereas let's say like 90% are just kind of free users who create this good ecosystem. And is that the kind of environment that you operate in as well, competing with like these kind of people? Or would you say that your competitive environment's different um, with your kind of games? No, I think that like a lot of the spaces like that, um, maybe it's maybe diversifying a bit now. Um, I think that over the last year you've seen um, some changes. I think you're starting to see more games. Um, there's like a couple studios um, over the last year that have been really successful at it, but be doing ad-based stuff or more ad-based, so depending on the type. Um, so you have IAP revenue and ad purchases, so what you're kind of talking about traditional free-to-play, where you have um, the distribution is more concentrated on a few um, you know, larger spenders and then maybe some smaller spenders, but it's like sort of a long tail effect um, where most of the people, most of the population um, is not spending. So like a Pareto or a Lomax distribution. Uh, and then you have, um, and then the other strategy for monetizing that other percentages through ads. So, um, and I think, you know, the way you do that is really important. So creating an experience that's not crappy. Um, so like I think a huge thing is like how you provide value, how you, how you do stuff that um, always feels like content, always provides value, um, always like delights the user. I think is that's like a huge important thing because that way, you know, you ensure high retention, you ensure that people stick around for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, sort of very much the space that a lot of people are in. Um, we're probably more of an IAP studio than I would say we are an ad studio. Um, so for reference, um, if you've ever played or downloaded games from like the top charts that are maybe more simple, there's like a ball bouncing or like bowls.io or some pretty sort of similar stuff um, to publishers that come to mind. Um, they, they both develop and they publish, but um, more more on the latter would be um, Catch App or Voodoo. Um, so those are two names of companies that have um, become pretty successful at um, making sort of smaller games. Like if you think about um, the depth of the game, it's smaller. Um, and where the main monetization uh, or main mechanic is uh, ad monetization um, because everyone's always trying to grow their game so that's always a great source of revenue obviously there's a trade-off between you know is it better to show an ad to somebody especially if they could potentially spend money in your app but if your primary focus is in showing those ads then it becomes a slightly simpler equation um, and then your main goal is just to come up with something that's fun compelling and that's you know fairly low cost to produce um, and then you know being able to do that and replicate that strategy frequently, and then being able to generate high install volumes while ensuring reasonable retention over a period of time. So that's um, so maybe the voodoo, uh, and then nothing of that is unique. Like everyone obviously wants high retention, high volume, um, but I think there's a specific uh, emphasis on the game design where you have things that are a lot more simple, like a lot more simple, a lot more accessible. Um, the term hyper casual. Um, well, it's kind of done to death. Everyone's like, oh, hyper-casual will make it successful. And it's like, oh, it's got to be a ball game or something like sort of really basic. And I think it's, that's kind of overdone, at least if you read like a lot of the content marketing or the, the industry stuff lately. Um, but that's kind of the space that would be the opposite to say maybe IAP. Um, just to kind of give you a brief or a high-level overview of that. Um, right. And what, um, what's the IAP acronym? Uh, in-app purchases. In-app purchases. Yeah, so that's, sorry. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of acronyms in this mm-hmm, space. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so IEP, in-app purchases. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that would be the more sort of traditional model where you have games like, uh, 
we hardcore midcore that are very in app focused, whether you know whether it's like strategy games, and, you know, like that's obviously very IP heavy, right? Um, or social casino, which is another super heavy um, category, and that's a you know a really big category as well. Um, yeah, so those are sort of maybe on the one end of the spectrum, and on the other you have um, studios, titles, games that are much more casual. Okay, okay, and you know, there's I think there's kind of the mantra in a lot of the startup companies where you know just build a great great product and people will come, and there's the other side that goes no you 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 got to market everything and even if it's not as great of a product people will still come. Like how do you how do you guys balance uh, the marketing effort and the product side? Uh, to first acquire and then retain? Like, does it change how much you focus on each other depending on the phase? Yeah. Um, so I think that no matter how good your UA is, no matter how good your marketing is, if the game isn't, like, it isn't a good... So when I, when I, when I quantify as good game, what I mean, you know, when it doesn't balance, um, balance its economy with the fun that users have playing it, like, if it's not like a, a well-designed title, no amount of like the most successful acquisition will never back out because you're competing with people for the average cost of inventory. Um, so just really just the idea is your game has to be able to generate the same amount of value or on average the same amount of value as other titles relative to the average cost of inventory. So everything's um, based on a CPM pricing more or less. Um, so per thousand impressions. Um, so that's typically how the ad space is bought. Um, and unless your title is able to do that, you won't be able to compete. And so, like, even if you have you know, crazy sophisticated marketing, if the product isn't there, mm. which is kind of like the heart of it, if the product's not there, um, then you'll, you're just not going to be successful. Um, I don't think. Uh, maybe if there's like, if I, if I would actually love to find an example of like a crappy product and great marketing. Well, actually, there are examples of that, but I think not like at the extreme. Right, right. Um, and so that's why I think like product. Is always really important. Um, I think that when um, when growth and when acquisition informs product, and you and you look at um, you know companies that do that really well, uh, where people have um, where it's clear that you know they've obviously thought a lot about um, not just building a really great product, but like building a really great product that's really easy um, to to bring other people into. Um, you know, I think a great example of that is always when you see uh, people that have really great on user onboarding, so like really great tutorials. Um, they're called FTVs in, in this space, so first-time user experience. Mm. So when you have a really strong first-time user experience, I think that really lends itself to having higher early-term retention, which translates to more people playing the game later, more people potentially monetizing, more people around for you know, it's more more people better better products. So like that attention to the player experience, I think, is super important. And then um, so like product, so it's always product first, really to simplify. But you know, in the ways you do that, there's a tons of different ways. Yeah. It's like how do you make a great product that's fun to play, um, and that people want to continue to play. And I think that's, you know, it's really easy to say, but obviously that's the art, you know, and that's the business and the competitive advantages, you know, having insight into that and being able to do that um, and make games that people want to play for years, not just like, you know, download it, play it, and then delete it. Yeah, I think that whole habit-forming mentality of like, okay, how, how am I going to get someone really addicted and, and in a positive way to this game, make it into a habit, um, is definitely the art form. So for you then, 
how do you create, like what kind of habits do you have to make yourself effective throughout the day? And do you use the same techniques that you guys implement in uh, designing games for yourself as well? Oh, for sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of like habit formation and like trying to design habits. Mm. Uh, I spend a lot, like, like I said, that, you know, Tuesday morning, Tuesday, yeah, yeah. Tuesday morning thing, you know, that's huge. Um, that's, you know, the Tuesday morning thing is huge for me. Um, but main habits that I always try, um, let's see, I've got a ton of them. I'm trying to figure out what ones are good to share and what ones make sense. Um, I find like the cadence at which I plan. So I've really tried to build habits around really specific near term planning. Um, so building space in the data plane to be reactive. So like at four o'clock every day, you know, I'm normally in the office till like six or seven, but at four o'clock I kind of like stop early spend 30 minutes plan my next day uh, like I'm a huge uh, user like uh, more on the power user end of Google Calendar so like my entire like if I have my calendar like open so like people can like all my team can see like exactly what I'm doing all day um, and it's like blocked like even my like 10 minute breaks will blocked off it's like stare at ceiling for 10 minutes be blocked off maybe not that extreme but like that's like the level of um, of folks that I have uh, so I'm really interested in that um, a lot of my habits, I think, center around like uh, data collection. So, like, how how to be really effective with like the data that you produce. So, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, oh god, now I'm gonna forget the name. Um, I think it's Eisenhower's decision matrix. One, General two, Eisenhower. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like one, two, three, four. One is like, Im- like important, urgent, not important, not urgent, or that's. Oh, four, the, you know the Stephen Covey talks about that yeah, too. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's like you know the not important. The not urgent and important is like the the top. Yeah, yeah, you want to do. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you have that like decision matrix of like how and I'm getting really uh, getting really reflexive about like when you know you have to do something. Like I like have a little like uh, four quadrant thing the way that I write stuff down um, and, and just trying to get like the most out of my time uh, and, and using that to do it. So it's like, okay. So as soon as you have something that you know is important but not urgent, well, you just always schedule that just goes in the calendar and you just don't and like I guess really practicing how to context switch going from like okay like being really focused on something and then being like oh whatever I'm gonna go focus on this thing and and, and be really good at like leaving whatever you were doing just packing it up in your head and just like putting it on the shelf for later um, which has always eluded me sort of so that's sort of something I focus on and it's also very different to multitasking too it's actually closing something and doing Focusing on one thing, prioritizing that, so that your mind's actually focused on one thing instead yeah. of being on two screens and doing two different things. It's really yeah. I think I'm a huge fan of um, it's somebody. Uh, like it's some, it's, like it's a famous like Google thing where they talk about like really processing and doing things in serial as opposed to parallel. So yeah. like tasks and tasks in serial, I'm a huge fan of. So I really try to you know, say, okay, here's this one thing, um, and focusing on priorities and not just doing a ton of things, but doing like one thing really well and then moving on to the next thing. Um, I think there's some anecdote about, um, at Google early on, they would have, they had this system where someone could like walk up to you and say a specific keyword. Um, I don't know what it was, uh, it was like rabbit or something and they said rabbit and you had to pull like this one thing that you were working on that was really effective. So the idea of pulling a rabbit out of a hat, um, and anyone could walk up to you and say that, and you had to say like the most important thing that you were working on. Um, so that's, you know, I guess kind of like the idea of uh, really attacking things in serial as opposed to parallel. And I think, you know, like multitasking and like parallel approaches are always like really like, oh, that's how you should work. But 
being like really focused and serial about things I think is important. Yeah, and I think then, it's the effective and efficient yeah, battle. You yeah. want to be effective yeah. rather than being efficient. Exactly, that trade-off. Um, and then probably the last thing is uh, five-minute journaling. Nice. Yeah. Do so, you use the the five-minute journal? Uh, the book itself, or not? You know, so I don't. I'm not. Don't need to buy the book, but yeah, like yeah. the idea of you know. So like for me, I always ask like, okay, like you know, practicing gratitude. I think is super important. So like you know, three things to be grateful for. Um, the three things that will make the day a success, and then at the end of the day, um, three things, the three amazing things that happened in the day, and then like what could go better. Do that every day. Write that down. Um, and I've found like that really that's had a really profound effect on the way that I think about stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've I've mentioned it a couple of times in my own blog post too. Like I, I think I've had a journaling habit for about three years now, so it's been constantly evolving. Uh, so I, I started with the book, the five minute journal. Okay. And then I found that it was too limiting for what I wanted to do, so mm-hmm. I got a bigger notebooks so I could actually write everything down. Okay. And then that's constantly evolving to like an Evernote now where I keep everything on like a daily Evernote thing and I have templates for beginning day and then end of day. Yes. And now I review it. So I reviewed it yesterday. So every Monday I review the week's worth of journals so I can re go through everything kind of and then disseminate the data into different piles of my life that's all on Evernote. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. I, uh, I'm still working on building in my like what the because I think like, you need to write it down and then you also need to like consume it and like yeah. like okay you know like I think that one of my favorite ways of doing that um, which comes from uh, which came from a friend who's really good at asking questions um, was just asking like okay well like what was the best part of your week last week and I think like just that like super simple question and like if you look at your journals to kind of like try to understand that because um, it's hard to pull out just like you know pull that out of a hat but um, asking that question of you know what what was the best part of your week um, I think is super telling in, in terms of improving your happiness improving how effective you are at whatever it is you're doing if you can figure out what it is that you like uh, and then try to like increase that and then you know always try to like split the what you like and what you don't yeah yeah and so right now um, if you know someone were to come to you and ask hey Conrad I, I want to form a habit and if you're to guide them through how to make something into a habit um, using a similar framework you do for game design, how would that framework look like? Uh, positive reinforcement often, frequently. Um, mm. So like strong, positive feedback. How frequently? Uh, as frequently as possible to not be noise. Um, so it, I think it really depends on like what the habit is that you're trying to reinforce. Um, I think that's, you know, like if you get in, if, so this is more talking about game design, but if you try to do something too frequently, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, that's why if you look at maybe some strategy games or some um, different categories, um, you'll see they design it in a way where it's efficient for you to not play. So they don't want you to burn out. Yeah, so some games that have like timers or you know, different things that involve like waiting for resources to collect, that's all been designed so that you take a break. Oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Exactly. So, but so what that designer is wanting you to do is to play, to really enjoy it, and then you want to stop, and then they want to create a reason for it to be really effective for you to come back. Right. Like I'm now looking forward to playing yeah. that when yeah, the time ex- is up. Oh, exactly. I, I that, honestly, when I was playing, so I don't play games often, um, but. I was for a period of time really into Clash of Clans, like many people uh, were. Yeah, the king. And yeah, they're the king of that. Yeah, and I always thought, oh, they're trying to make me pay money. 
I'm not gonna fall, I'm not gonna fall for that. I'll just wait. Yeah, no, no. They just want you. To, but eventually, I'm sure that at some point you paid money. But really, beyond what they're trying to do, other than just encouraging, because that's one of the ways is you trade time for money. Like that's like a really clear um, balance in, in those types of games. Which is like, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think it's the uh, when it's well, like they do. I think a pretty good job of it um, for the most part. But um, the other thing that's happening uh, that's under the hood of all that that you don't really notice is you're getting more like not addicted, oh. but like you're enjoying it more mm. because there's an efficiency trade-off, right? It's clear, and you know, and, and this was you know done even better in Clash Royale where there was an efficiency for not playing. You could play as much as you wanted. Um, the whole chess mechanics. I don't know if you played, but. Um, different to Clash of Clans for Clash Royale. They just had a system where um, you could you know, play endlessly, but you stopped getting rewards after a certain point. Where it, so that made it like, oh, well, I'll just play this much and then wait and play later. Um, and so that's the, that's the kind of the way of you know, creating a habit where it's sort of really smart about when you want that frequency. Um, but always having tight feedback. So like you do the habit, you get a reward. Um, there's a, a model for building habits called the hooked model. Um, By um, uh, Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't pronounce it. I was gonna yeah. say, I can't pronounce his name to save my life, but yeah. That, but just, I know exactly what you're talking about. I yeah. think his book is called Hooked, yeah. Yeah, and it's a spectacular book. Yeah. That book's great. Um, yeah, that model. So you, so you need like a hook, you need a tight reward, and then you need something that's going to remind somebody. So like, you know, you have like an external stimuli that says, oh, I should do this. You do it and then you feel good because you've done it and if something positive happens, that's how you build the habit. So whether that's like, you know, you want to always, um, you know, let, let's say you want to try to, uh, what's the most basic something thing that people want to do? Okay, lose weight, for example. Um, so like one way that I might think about that is like, okay, so in order to do that, you need to be conscious of your weight. The best way to do that is to have a scale take that a step further, get a smart scale. So then you have a smart scale. If you weigh yourself every day and you collect that data automatically, like put, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, like Fitbit. So there's like a, like a simple, um, if this, then that like recipe to put your smart scale weight into a spreadsheet. So all of a sudden you have this habit where you step on the scale, you see a number. If that number is lower or it's good, then you feel good about that and you're further rewarded because it's now in a spreadsheet and you're further incentivized to keep working towards your goals. If you step on the scale and you see a number you don't like, well, that's also reinforcement to, to do something about it and you have that stored so that you can you know, reflect back on it later. Um, and in either way, as long as you do that every day, um, you collect that data and also if you don't do that, you don't end up with the data and then that's a negative and you're like, oh, well, I, I, I missed out. So having that sort of a positive and negative for the habit, I think is also like having feedback either way, I think is important. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I totally believe you. Um, I think that whole data keeping mindset of actually recording everything so you can, you can actually look at it as proof is, it, it, it's honestly a game changer, I think. Um, like the recent habit I worked on latest was um, taking a photo of everything I eat and putting up on Instagram. Um, and the idea was this, so I can actually keep track of uh, just what I eat and I have a very big addiction to pastries and so okay. it's, it's an idea to change my consumer behavior around that and I have noticed that once I started posting every meal I take on Instagram I stopped um, eating like sugary almond croissants and really? I transitioned over to just plain croissants which is much less in calories and much less in sugar and so 
Um, it's helping with me with my diet so that I can lower my weight so I don't have to do as big of a cut when I go compete in my powerlifting competitions. Okay. And yeah, I think it's been a good reinforcing habit where you just constantly post it up and sometimes you might get a nice friend who says, great job, like, I'm noticing that you know, there's some improvement. And then so there's that kind of feedback loop that hits you or yeah. uh, my coach uh, messaged me and said, hey Dan, see what you're doing there. And, um, so yeah, that kind of stuff I think definitely does help. But keeping that data and like actually looking back and then seeing what did I actually eat for like the past months is a good indicator of actually helping form more um, habits that actually stay with you. Yeah, yeah I and, think that's huge. Yeah, and so we're kind of, uh, I guess, wrapping up um, on to the later ending parts of the interview. And so for someone um, who is thinking of going into a growth role, like a growth marketing role, what kind of qualities do you think um, would make a person be a good fit for growth marketing role if they were to, like the strengths that the person should have to really succeed in this kind of role? Sure. Um, so I spent a lot of time on this because I've been hiring. Um, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, so this is like, oh yeah, I've like been doing this to death. Um, so I think that in order to be really successful um, in this role, you know, regardless of where it is, whether it's here or anywhere, um, intellectual curiosity is huge. Mm. Like if you do not have intellectual curiosity, um, you're like in trouble. And hope, maybe hopefully you still have a pulse. Um, I don't know. I just I, I just like can't get my head around. You can't be like, oh wow. Like there's just the access, um, and this leads me to the second point. But um, I, I kid you not, just the ability to Google. Um, so like just being able to figure stuff out. So, you know, whether, whatever it is, you know, obviously you should always be provided with a lot of support when you're learning a new role or when you're trying to accomplish something, but just Google, like it's amazing when you can Google just trying to figure out how to solve a problem, um, and really developing like a great Google sense. Uh, I actually like try, so I try to engineer stuff, um, it's really hard to test for but to try and figure out like okay well how good is this person and I guess what I'm saying is really just problem solving like how good are you at solving problems obviously Google's a great tool for that um, so intellectual curiosity ability to Google slash problem solve um, and then being super data driven I think that in most growth roles in a lot of places there's always going to be a lot of access to data um, and so how you take advantage of that um, and then I think there's also, uh, d depending on how um, how top of funnel the growth role is, really always having like a strong, whether you call it a business sense or really just understanding like how value is created, um, you know, I, I will sort of call it, my shorthand for it is just like having a truffle sense, you know, like they're um, either dogs or pigs that are trained to smell truffles in a forest, like that's how truffles are farmed. Um, and so my analogy to that is just like, do when you hear an opportunity or whether it's, you know, for buying media or whether it's a feature or whether it's something like, can you smell the leverage and you're like, oh, that's great. Like that's, you know, that's going to be either really profitable or that's going to be really successful. Like, do you get that? Can you sense that? And then does it excite you? So that's the last thing is like, do, you know, do you have a spark? Like, is there like, if when I'm talking to you, um, and I, and I hadn't really quite found a way to do this super successfully without talking to somebody, but if when you talk to somebody, if they get like visibly excited about stuff, um, not to say that, you know, quite introverted people aren't successful in growth, because I think that's, you know, some of the, like one of our co-founders is like quite quiet. Um, so like, you know, I, I, I do mean excitement like on a relative personal scale, but um, when, when somebody gets excited and you can see that excitement, 
um, that's something that I think is really important in growth because it's really easy to get burnt out. There's a ton of stuff. Like it's a really difficult space because by virtue of what you're doing, you're always trying to grow. So there's always like, oh, like have you hit your goal? It's like, yeah, but like you know, the goal is going to be more. The goal is always more, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of can be can be difficult. So you know, managing that, and I think that kind of personality trait is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and. And so then now, um, doing a bit of an exercise with you, um, if let's say we forecast out ten years mm-hmm. now, twenty twenty eight September eighteenth, um, and you know let's say you're you're taking care of financially all your financial goals and all that's met, what what do you want to be doing? Uh, still problem solving. Like don't don't even need to hesitate like still solving problems like doesn't matter um yeah i'm a huge i'm a huge problem solving addict um like all else being equal um like you know probably uh probably working with like early stage um so like not scale so like you know you can break this out as to say okay startups scale ups you know i don't necessarily know like what the what the ebitda or what the revenue numbers that differentiates them but um helping like working more like on the startup side um doing you know helping people scale this is probably like then the kind of problems that go around with that um Mm -hmm. so i think that ties into like really for me it's like i just like solving problems like that's really exciting so um yeah in 10 years it's probably like i'm probably in a scenario where i can i have hopefully been successful at solving enough problems that i'm in a position where i can sort of pick and choose what problems i want to solve um, and then set myself up in an environment that I can sort of just tee them up and try and solve them like as rapidly as possible is probably what I would want to do, I think. Kind Barring. of like a growth mercenary. Yeah, you know, like I think there's like opportunity, you, know, you, you see people um, who work with, you know, say like, um, obviously like VC funds are always investing in a lot of places and like, you know, when any, when any, any time a startup gets a ton of money, they need help how to deploy that so like that's a potential area and you're like that's super interesting it's like oh okay is there an opportunity there is there you know who who really is just like who's having problems or not even having problems but like who's trying to find more problems to solve in order to to grow and scale and that sort of stuff so that's the stuff that really interests me nice nice and so we did the forecasting bit if we were to look back and um if we could if you could go look at your 20-year-old self, 20-year-old Conrad in, um, I guess, still in school, probably. Yeah. And if he could look at where you are now doing what you are doing, um, what do you think his emotional reaction would be? Would it be surprise or more ex- expected? I don't know if it would be surprise. I don't want to say, like, you know, I don't want to say, oh, I wouldn't be surprised because that sounds super egotistical. Um, yeah, I think there's always... I didn't necessarily know, you know, like I kind of had, I'm not necessarily huge on like prescriptive paths, but maybe more like cones of direction, um, where I'm sort of like gesturing my arms sort of like out wide kind of in a triangle, but that's the kind of way I think it's like, okay, you're maybe not necessarily going to do exactly this, um, because I don't think anything really ever goes like super according to plan. Um, but being like, okay, being able to sort of like forecast, like, okay, I'm going to head in this general, you know, 25 to 45 degree direction. Um, and I kind of had that, that's kind of always been the way that I've really approached things um, from like really early. So I, so that's kind of the way that I approach things. So I, I'd probably be, the emotional reaction would be like, oh, that's good. I, I kind of would be like surprised and be like, oh, okay, so it worked. 
um, sort of like healthy skepticism, call it maybe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you could give advice to that 20 year old Conrad, what kind of advice would you like to give him? Oh, kind of the advice that you wish you had gotten the, at 20. Okay. Um, the advice that I wish I had gotten at 20, maybe is too specific to me, but I, I think that there is like, it's all going to be like, all, like anything is just going to be a ton of hard work. So you need a lot of grit. Not to say that I didn't have it when I was younger, um, but I think that there's some things, or there's a tendency for some people um, to to think that like, oh, okay, so like, it's always going to be regardless of what you want to like achieve, unless you're just set your targets are really low, and then it's easy to achieve that. But like, any good stretch goal is like really difficult. Um, I would probably say like, look, sort of disregard a lot and just get really good at working really hard. Um, and then get really in tune with what makes you happy and then just work really hard for what makes you happy and everything else will kind of take care of itself. Um, you know, like I made some unconventional, you know, like I left business school effectively and, and, and have wound up back sort of in business or, you know, a lot of the, the similar profile would probably be like a business school grad um, for, for my position at any other studio. So I think the, the advice would probably be like just get really good at working really hard early. Um, I think I probably had maybe like a year or two of slacking. I don't know if much would have changed, but yeah, like mm -hmm. get really good at working hard. Yeah, and this might be related to what you just said, but is there um, a belief that you have that you think goes against conventional wisdom in a business or career standpoint? Uh, the classic question, like what do you believe that everybody else doesn't? Mm -hmm. um, or you think everyone else does? You know, what I think everyone else yeah. Yeah, maybe around prescriptors of success, you know, like I think that there's a lot of conventional wisdom about how to hire, and I'm not super sold on a lot of that. Okay. Um, so like my beliefs lead to, I, I end up having to spend a ton more time hiring, um, because I'm not, you know, like I don't really care where somebody went to school. Um, a lot of those things, a lot of the things that I think as like predictors of success are maybe more like traditional predictors of success. You know, where you went to school, some things like that. I've, I've also been proven wrong on this. Um, but I think that it's like a lot of it is like, you know, the types of traits of the individual, like the way they operate. Um, I care less about like resume and buzzwords, things like that. Um, I don't know, maybe that's not traditional wisdom or not. I'm not quite sure. That would probably be one of them, or at least the, the easiest one for me to share offhand is my like lack of trust in like that traditional school of thought. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to say that's it for now, but I'll tell you if I think of anything else. All right. No, that's good. Cool. Cool. Great. Oh, thanks for having um, coming on the podcast. And I really think our audience would get like, a great idea of um, what people in growth do and find your story fascinating. So thank you. Thanks so much for coming. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. 
you can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews i write my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems as well as seven things i learned throughout the week on being healthy wealthy and wise Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music tiny people on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.